If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How were the Edwardians different from the Victorians? Who were the biggest celebs of the era? And what did people at the time do for fun? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, I'm heading back to Edwardian Britain with Dr John Wolfe, who's an author, historian and co-writer of the new Audible series, Stephen Fry's Edwardian Secrets. As always with this series, John is answering a mixture of questions you've submitted via social media and some of the internet's most popular search queries. Thank you so much for joining me to talk all about the Edwardian era today. We've had loads of questions in, so thanks to everybody that sent them in from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and we've also got some of the most Googled questions as well. So to start us off on the subject of the Edwardians, we've got a question from one of our Instagram followers, which is just, how long did the Edwardian era last? When did it start and when did it end? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Let's define our terms from the start, right? I mean, so technically, uh, it's the period in which Edward VII, Queen Victoria's eldest son, was on the throne. So that's 1901, the time that Queen Victoria died and Edward VII came to the throne, to 1910 when he died and he was succeeded by his son, George V. However, most historians, when they talk about the Edwardian period, they mean the kind of period... Um, from 1901 up to 1914, just before the outbreak of the First World War. And that's generally how we tend to treat the Edwardian period. So 1901 to 1914. So to give us a taste of what we're going to be talking about today, I've got a question from Google, which is, what was the Edwardian era known for? Again, another great question. I mean, it's one of these things of like, how do you anatomize an era? What are the kind of key trends? What's the zeitgeist? I think there's a number of things that we can highlight. Number one is the rise of the labor movement and the rise of the suffragette movement and the rise of pan-Africanism. You know, so these sort of more minority or marginalized groups asserting themselves in this period is one of the kind of key trademarks or key aspects of the Edwardian era. But you also have a change, you know, the rise of the middle classes, greater urbanization, greater electrification, and the world becomes so much smaller in this period as well. So you've got change, you've got the assertion of rights, and you've got this kind of like optimism matched with pessimism. This was an era of kind of swagger, opulence, self-belief, bit of arrogance. But underneath that, there was this fear of uh, imperial decline, a decline in the, the sort of British stock, if you like, and the rise of eugenics uh, fears. So a kind of paradoxical age as well. So you've given us a lot of changes there. And I want to, you know, throw a spanner in the works immediately with a question by um, Real HVARTS on Instagram, who has asked, but was the Edwardian era even really long enough to develop its own trademarks? Your last question would suggest, yes, it was. A hundred percent. I think it was. And, you know, it's one of the things that marks this era as unique, I think, is that it's almost quite a liminal period. It comes, you know, just after the great long Victorian era and just before the destruction of the First World War. And so you have this strange era, which has been very much open to sort of uh, mythology, you know, tea on the lawn, the long sunlit afternoons. And actually, once you start really penetrating the Edwardian period, you start seeing very particular trends, zeitgeists, moments, give this a unique flavour, very different to the, the myths that we've, we, we've seen perpetuated, uh, particularly in recent years. So yes, in short. Leading on from this idea of a liminal period, I'm going to throw two questions at once to you because we've got a lot to get through for today. So Marina on Instagram has asked, how was the Edwardian era different to the Victorian period? And Katie's Table on Instagram has asked, did the Edwardians see themselves as modern? I wonder if you could tackle those two together for us. So I mean, on a very basic level, the Edwardian era was different to the Victorian era because you had a different person on the throne, Edward VII, and he set a different tone for the era. So the Edwardians were kind of less conservative in outlook. They were a bit more sort of lax morally, you could say. As I've said before, in the Edwardian era, unlike the Victorian era, um, the world was smaller. 
I think that's fair to say it was more interconnected. You had the rising assertion of different groups, be that the working classes, black Britons or women. Inventions that occurred in the Victorian era start becoming more widespread in the Edwardian era. So electricity in homes, for example, um, or the first local telephone systems uh, start kind of spreading in in the Edwardian era. Then you have like women's clothes become less restrictive. And I think all of that led to this sense that, yes, the Edwardians were aware that they were distinctly modern. They were global in outlook. Um, and they even talked about like kind of how old Victorian speech patterns and old Victorian cultures were were dying and being replaced by by new things. So there was this awareness that with the passing of Queen Victoria, a new age was was uh, beckoning, and this was a modern, exciting, global, self-confident period. Speaking about a global self-confident period, Trace on Instagram has asked how the Edwardian era in Britain compares to America's Gilded Age. Yes, I mean, the Gilded Age, from my understanding, sort of the 19, late 19th century, really, 1870 to around 1900, But there are some sort of similarities. I mean, in the Gilded Age, you've got the growth of the railroads, greater uh, transportation and communications develop in that period, as they do in the Edwardian period. In the America's Gilded Age, you've got the influx of millions of uh, European immigrants. We see that also in the Edwardian Age uh, with the um, uh, influx of Jewish migration from Russia and Eastern Europe. We have this sort of glitz and glamour and opulence in the Gilded Age and in the Edwardian Age matched with this undercurrent of poverty, unemployment and corruption. So there are lots of similarities, but they are kind of separate things as well, I'd say. So we've spoken about some of the big themes and movements of this era, but what about specific moments? What are some of the most memorable or defining moments of the Edwardian era? so weird isn't it because it's such a short period and yet so much happens so you could say you know the titanic looms large in this period uh, in 1912 um, and the, the kind of public reaction to the sinking of the titanic and this outpouring of of grief and and anger um, and you know the titanic symbolized this sort of great new modernity and progress which came kind of crashing down so that was a big moment i think the people's budget of 1909 to 1910 you know, the foundations of the modern welfare state were being built in the Edwardian period. Of course, the declaration of World War One in 1914, but we've also got the Wright brothers' uh, flight in 1902, the first sort of controllable aircraft. Again, kind of technology um, defining this era. So lots of key moments, and it's hard to cite just one, to be honest. And before we move on to some more specific cultural stuff, let's just talk about for a moment the leader, of course, that gave his name to this era. Jeff Cunningham has asked an interesting question about Edward, who says, was Edward VII the archetypal Edwardian or was he just the namesake? Ah, I mean, archetypal Edwardian, you know, does Edward represent the working classes? Well, no. Does he represent the middle classes? No. Does he represent the aristocracy? Not really. I mean, he was king. You know, he was born destined for the throne. So in that sense, he's he's um, marked as, as different from birth. And yet his lifestyle 
did reflect certainly the life of the aristocrats. You know, in Edwardian Britain, you had a small circle of about 1,500 families that were kind of defined as the aristocracy, their wealth coming from land. And they were opulent, they were landed, they were incredibly promiscuous. I mean, they were all sleeping with with each other's wives and husbands. And they were big eaters, big diners. And that was very much uh, Edward's shtick, if you like. He had a 48-inch waist, multiple mistresses. Uh, He knocked back copious amounts of coffee, wine, about 10 rich meals a day, 13 cigars, 20 cigarettes a day. This was a man who consumed uh, food, sex, drink, um, and that very much reflected um, a facet of the uh, Edwardian period. So on one level, like he reflects a, an element of the Edwardian age and he sets the tone for the age, but I, I, I'm not sure we can talk about archetypes. <laughs> yeah. So if we're going to look at life for for the ordinary person in Edwardian England, what would ordinary everyday life have looked like? Obviously, this is going to be incredibly different if you were working class, middle class or an aristocrat, but why don't we talk about the working class? Sure. So, I mean, for the working class, life is still really tough. You know, poverty, deprivation, malnourishment uh, is still a reality of of everyday life. You might be, if you're in the working classes, be organising more, and, and no doubt we're going to be talking about the sort of assertion of working class rights in this period. But life was difficult. And you weren't fully integrated into the social structures of the time. Uh, And so you had to fight for your rights. And being a servant, for example, working in domestic service, uh, particularly if you're a woman, you know, this was laborious, tiring, uh, difficult, dirty work. So life could be tough for the working classes. Uh, The middle classes, you know, they were getting bigger. They had more uh, money in their pockets uh, and they were always sort of desperate to emulate the aristocracy. And they had all these sort of weird rules around tea, tea time. Um, and the aristocracy was stressing about the decline in land values uh, and desiring to marry um, wealthy American uh, women. So, you know, it was a period of sort of general struggle. But if we kind of pull back a bit more generally, there was more leisure time, people were having fun, there were more motor vehicles on the streets, you had more modern conveniences, better ovens in the house, cleaning agents, and kind of lighter fabrics for women as well. I mean, this was still a repressive uh, period for women, which demanded the assertion of rights. But, uh, you know, things were becoming a bit more laxer, certainly around fashions uh, for women as well. So, yeah, it depended who you were, really. Well, that leads us on quite nicely to a question from Laxadaisy on Instagram, which is, what did the Edwardians do for fun? Oh, they were, they were great fun. They had such a ball. I mean, they loved international sports, so rugby, football. Uh, the 1908 Olympics came to London, and there were, if my memory serves me right, 22 different sports with over uh, it was 2,000 athletes took part. Um, and if I'm right, it was only 37 female athletes. So again, it's a very much a male-dominated world. But they had fun with sports, athletics, fencing, lacrosse, movies. This was a new thing, the rise of the, the, the cinema. And cinemas occur in the dark, right? So lots of naughty happenings in cinemas as well. So, you know, Edwardians could have fun uh, sexually uh, within their entertainment spaces and going to the theatre as well. I mean, Peter Pan hits the stage in 1904 and becomes a massive uh, phenomenon. 
So the Edwardians knew to have uh, knew how to have fun, and there was also this weird period of crazes in the Edwardian period. So they loved dressing up, they loved rollerblading uh, <laughs> and uh, skating as well, and the tango became a craze. Um, so yeah, uh, lots of boogieing, lots of musicals, lots of theatres, lots of sport. Edwardians roller skating probably isn't something that anybody imagined would ha- they'd learn about this episode, but muffin. 288, great name on Instagram, has asked about Edwardian childhood. What can you tell us about what it would have been like to grow up in this period? To grow up in this period? Well, it's the first, and actually this is a break from the Victorian period as well. This is an era in which childhood uh, becomes much more cherished uh, and the world becomes more sort of child-centric, child-centred, if you like. And, and children were treated as sort of beings and agents in their own right. So if you were growing up in this period, you would have more freedom to have fun, um, to play games, uh, to play with your friends. This was a period in which child labour was uh, being cracked down uh, upon by by the government. Um, and the education system itself was sort of uh, revamped. So children were going to lessons, attending school, learning writing and arithmetic. Girls were were learning sewing. Um, So again, still this sort of gender division. But children were encouraged uh, in schooling. They were encouraged to have fun. And there was children's literature as well. I mean, Peter Pan being a prime example. Uh, And physical education as well was a big part uh, of, of childhood. So again, it did depend what class you were in. If you were of the working classes, you're more likely to, uh, you know, be going out and working and childhood would be more restrictive and, and, and difficult. But as a concept, it was treated more seriously and there was more opportunity for children to have fun, for children to enjoy childhood and play games and learn. So probably a better time to be born than the Victorian period. Definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you're into Scouts, you know, Scouts were formed in 1908, so you could join the Scouts as well, which is kind of cool. Now we have a really great question from Liz on Twitter. And Liz has asked who the celebrities of Edwardian Britain are. Um, yeah, I mean, so obviously, like, you know, you've got obvious ones like Edward VII was, you know, was, was well known. Um, you've got sort of slightly darker celebrities, if you read you know, celebrities in quotation marks. So Dr. Crippen, who was ha- hung in 1910, the murder of his wife with his mistress and he was one of the first criminals to be captured with the aid of wireless uh, telegraphy and his his story and his desire to to escape justice in britain was kind of splashed across the press so quite a public trial public execution and he became a sort of dark celebrity of the edwardian era bell bilton an amazing musical artist later the countess of clancarty a musical singer turned aristocrat and a friend of queen alexandria uh, was a celebrity of the period and then you had like some really cool suffragette fighters sophia dulip singh uh, one of my personal favorites goddaughter to queen victoria lived in hampton court but was a right pain in the royal backside she was a militant suffragette and uh yeah she really fought for the cause and then you got like the likes of samuel coleridge taylor a black british composer who kind of slightly been marginalized in our history books but in the Edwardian period, I mean, he was on the par with Ed 
Edward Elgar and his song of Hiawatha was immensely popular in this period. He met President Theodore Roosevelt at the White House in 1904, did international tours uh, and was well known. And when he died in 1912, uh, you know, obituaries were, were splashed across the pa- pages of the press. So, you know, from whether it's from criminals to royals to entertainment, the whole range of different celebrities uh, in this era and the popular press, the proliferation of the press helped to perpetuate, you know, celebrities or personalities in this period. So that would be how the ordinary person would become fans, as it were, of these celebrities, popular press. Popular press, you know, we've got movies now, we've got photography, all these signs of modernity, uh, postcards as well, so you could collect images of your of your favourite celebs. And yeah, you know, this sort of, the things we take for granted nowadays were being developed uh, and becoming entrenched in the Edwardian period. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So witchcraft, for example, we might think that's like some old predated thing. Uh Uh-uh, that was alive and well in the Edwardian period. It's a great witch who was knocking around at the time known as Mother Hearn, who told Fortune she brewed these herbal remedies. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. 
You mentioned earlier women's fashion, and that was something I wanted to return to a bit because I think there's some interesting undercurrents at play there. Uh, Muffin288 has been back on Instagram and asked perhaps my favourite question of this podcast, which is, why were women's hairstyles so poofy? (laughs) But I know you're not specifically an expert on hair, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit about some of the social meanings of fashions at the time. Poofy, great word. <laughs> and actually, they, at this period, I could talk, I'm not so sure about women's hairs as poofy, but certainly like blouses became a thing in the Edwardian period. Um, and they were quite poofy. And that the, the reason for that was the, they referred to it as like the S silhouette shaped body became part of uh, the fashion, became all the rage. And really that was sort of like a pushed out bust and a pushed back hips, that kind of S shape, became fashionable in the Edwardian period. And that kind of made blouses weren't meant to hug the body. They were supposed to be kind of poofy from the chest. So that's how you got sort of poofy uh, fashions. And ladies' etiquette and fashion manuals, they often talked about the importance of wearing a blouse and a skirt for, for morning wear uh, and around the house. And you had the rise of like tailored skirts, uh, skirts made made of wool so the clothing became a little less restrictive compared to the victorian period uh, for women for men you've got the rise of this sort of eloquent three-piece suits which is just stunning and uh, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's perhaps a bit of a myth but i think it's true this idea of a, a male waistcoat you've got the bottom button undone that was apparently because uh, Edward VII was so fat, he couldn't actually do up that button. So he undid it and everyone was like, oh, wow, that's the fashion, let's do that. So yeah, different fashions at this period um, and often set from the aristocrats uh, or the royals going down, down the social chain. I wonder if we could talk now a bit about some of those um, technological developments which were so important to this era. What were some of the best or most impactful innovations? Well, I mean, you've got the first vacuum cleaner uh, in, I think it was 1901, which revolutionised, you know, cleaning in the house, not to be scoffed at. The Wright gliders, the world's sort of first fully controllable aircraft in 1902. As I said earlier, the electrification of the home in the cities as well. So 1903, you've got the first electric trams that were running in London. Model T Ford car is sold and comes out in in, in 19. 19- 08, I think it is. And then you got the first flight across the English Channel in 1909. So there's a series of important technological developments that occur in the Edwardian period. You've got the sort of proliferation uh, of electricity and technological developments that occurred in the Victorian era, intensifying in the Edwardian era. And also, I think more kind of generally, there's some really cool, and I'm no physicist, but there's broader sort of developments in understandings around physics and, and the material world. You've got relativity theory, quantum theory, theory of radioactive disintegration and all of that kind of stuff uh, comes out in the Edwardian period. So a real, real kind of moment of technological innovation and, and, and change and discovery. I wonder if we can talk now a bit more about politics and something that we need to address in this era is, of course, empire and the role of war. What impact did empire have on life in Britain? So empire still remained a key fact of, of British life. I mean, you know, the, the Union Jack was spread across, across the, the globe. But it did also bring fears as well. And I mean, the Boer War, where it began, uh, well, the Second Boer War, 
um, that was raging with the onset of the Edwardian period revealed that like a third of recruits were physically unfit. And so the empire sort of provoked these broader fears, not only about the extent to which uh, Britain could maintain control over the empire, because there were also the, the rise of nationalist movements uh, in different parts of the globe, but also provoked fears about the state of Britain's own health. You know, if a third of recruits in the Boer War, British recruits, were deemed unfit, what does that say about the, quote, racial, end quote, stock um, in Britain at the time? So empire was still an important part of, of Britain and Britain's sense of self and Britain's sort of moralising mission, if you like. Uh, but it also beca- became uh, a cause of some concern and, you know, dangerously uh, competition as well, particularly with, with, with Germany. So, um, yeah, empire is still important, but also a uh, cause for concern. Of course, this is the period that's running up to the breakout of the First World War. So what was at play in terms of European international relations from a British perspective? In terms of international tensions, if you like, that's a sort of, I mean, I think you could say that's a key trademark of the Edwardian period, or not least because you have the uh, establishment of the Secret Service in 1909 and the rise of being known as kind of spy fiction. Essentially, there was this big panic um, that Britain's competitors, particularly Germany, could invade Britain by air, by land, uh, by sea. Uh, And that kind of generated fear in government that Britain wasn't prepared for potential invasion. And so we had the birth of the Secret Service uh, in 1909, which became MI5 uh, and later MI6. So there was concerns with international competitors, notably Germany. British dominance was waning more generally. America uh, was kind of dominating globally more and more. And in Europe, there were divisions and power struggles that were happening. The Kaiser in Germany was building up the German Navy, which was threatening the superiority of the British Navy. And there was Russian aggression in the Far East uh, as well. So, you know, the political situation internationally was tense and Britain was concerned, its dominance was waning, and they were, you know, desiring to assert themselves. And ultimately, you know, this this led us up to the outbreak of the First World War. So yeah, as well as sort of international tensions in Europe, you've got tensions closer to home, Ireland being a prime example, um, and the uh, Irish home rule movement um, being uh, a dominating force in the Edwardian period and a destabilising one at that. So we have this slightly unstable position internationally, but what about within Britain? What were some of the key political movements or developments um, at play at the time? You've mentioned a couple, actually. So why don't we start with the labour movements? Yeah, so I mean, this is a period of massive unrest. The working classes are organising more and more. Between like 1911 to 1914, you've got what was known as the Great Unrest. There are around 3,000 strikes um, in this period. Uh, The working class is demanding better wages, more protection at work. So you had the assertion of the working classes through the trade union movement, through strikes. You also had the rise of the Labour Party 
And in 1903, there was actually a pact with the Liberal Party, which managed to return in 1906 about 29 Labour MPs to the House of Commons. So the the Labour movement is organising politically and is getting kind of more and more influence within the House of Commons. You also have, I mean, you've got Lenin who's knocking around in London at this time and anarchists and syndicalists who are organising and causing all sorts of trouble, uh, notably the siege of Sydney Street in 1911, which was a sort of big gunfight between uh, Latvian revolutionaries uh, and the police. So this was a kind of unstable time uh, amongst the the working classes as they were seeking to uh, assert their rights through different different uh, avenues. Nicholas Sergis on Facebook has said the Edwardian era is often characterised as a time of political mobilisation for the working classes. So you would say that that is a fair representation of this era? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a, a really nice example of that is the Domestic Workers Union of Great Britain and Ireland, which is established in uh, 1909, 1910. Um, and that's you know domestic workers, servants coming together, uh, unionising to assert their rights. And so, I mean, the trade union movement and the labour movement existed before the Edwardian period, but it was in this era that they become more organised, more assertive and more kind of vocal in demanding change. And the other movement I wanted to ask you about in a bit more depth is, of course, the suffrage movement. How influential were they in British life or how present? Hugely. Uh, particularly the sort of latter period of of the Edwardian era, where the suffragettes, the sort of more militant group of the the, the, the suffrage movement, uh, starts a kind of a campaign that they refer to as terrorism, and that was they referred to that that was their term terrorist. Uh, the newspapers referred to suffrage outrages, and it was essentially big arson campaigns and bombing campaigns across uh, Great Britain. And so, you know, whether it was planting bombs or burning down buildings or slashing paintings uh, in the National Gallery, the suffragettes uh, demanded attention in the national press and in daily life. And and they were heard. And, you know, at the beginning of the Edwardian period, you also had the the more sort of formal uh, organisation of the Women's Social and Political Union forming in 1903 with the Pankhurst family, designed to, as they said, wake up the nation through deeds, not words. And that they did uh, very forcibly in this period. I mean, there were um, amazing PR people, weren't they, the suffragettes? So this was constantly in the headlines throughout this era. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, It it was a uh, big part of their tactic was to make sure that they were visible, they were heard. And like I say, you know, the, the, the campaign that they embarked upon, and Dr. Fern Riddell talks about this uh, in her book, Death in 10 Minutes, when she looks at the suffragette Kitty Marion, was uh, akin to domestic terrorism. I mean, they, you know, they were putting people's lives at risk. They were planting bombs on carriages and trains and uh, burning down houses and uh, attacking the prime minister's car and the prime minister's house. Like, this was a real campaign to wake up the nation and scare the nation that you know, women had been disregarded for too long. They'd been sidelined in political life for, for forever uh, and change was needed and they were prepared to go to any lengths, including, you know, starving themselves uh, when they were arrested. So they're a real pain in the side of, of the establishment um, and they were a dangerous bunch. 
So moving towards the end of this era, one of the biggest um, search terms, internet search terms, is what came after the Edwardian era. You've spoken a bit about how the end of the Edwardian era is a bit up for debate, but what would you see as its definitive end? I think the definitive end is the declaration of uh, World War One, because once Britain enters the war, the the whole tenor of British life, domestically and internationally, uh, changes fundamentally. And you go into this period, this wartime period from 1914 to, to 1918, and then a very new country uh, is born or emerges from from the the, the terrors of, of the First World War. Uh, so I would end the Edwardian period kind of August 1914. I think that is one of the, the myths of the early 20th century, isn't it? That there was a kind of golden age of the Edwardian period that was abruptly brought to an end. A generation was lost in the First World War and Britain really never went back to the same way of life. Is that a historical misrepresentation or is that actually quite fair? No, I think it's a historical misrepresentation and it's been sort of perpetuated. I'm not slagging it off. I like Downton Abbey. It's great. But the idea of, you know, the Edwardian period uh, as reflected in Downton Abbey is a real myth. I mean, we've talked about the international tensions in this period. We've talked about the domestic tensions, strikes, uh, suffragette terrorism, anarchy, syndicalism, the rise of the working classes. I mean, this was a period of profound change. There was a lot of turmoil in Britain at this time. There was a lot of uncertainty about the future at this time. There was a lot of change at this time as well, um, both culturally and politically and economically. So this was an unsettled period. Um, and I think World War One has made and some of the kind of contemporary myths around the Edwardian period had sort of constructed this era as, you know, long summer afternoons with gentle tea on the lawn before the horrors of the First World War. And actually, it's, it's, it, that, that really is a myth. This was a much more complex um, and unique uh, period that was, um, yeah, a real challenge to live through. And finally, I'd like to end on a question um, from Liz on Twitter, who has asked, what would surprise me or challenge my preconceptions about life in Edwardian Britain? Ooh, great, great question. Okay, I've got a few things, actually. One is we, you know, we've talked a lot about science and technological innovation. But what I love about the Edwardian period is how science coexists alongside the supernatural. So witchcraft, for example, we might think that's like some old predated thing. Uh-uh, that was alive and well in the Edwardian period. There's a great witch who was knocking around at the time known as Mother Hearn, who told fortune she brewed these herbal remedies, diagnosed and cured witchcraft in, <laughs> in, in rural areas. So you had the sort of existence of science alongside supernatural beliefs, whether that was witchcraft uh, or spiritualism or indeed belief in fairies. So all of that was kind of swirling around the Edwardian period. You also had like, I think it's fair to say, greater sexual uh, liberation and a deeper understanding of sex and the, the, the various kinks and quirks of one's sex life uh, were becoming 
the subject of study in the Edwardian period. You had the sort of rise and entrenchment of sexologists who were trying to understand not only homosexuality, but cross-dressing and all other forms of uh, sexual expression at this period. So there was a greater understanding uh, around sex and also the unconscious. I mean, we haven't talked about, I don't know if I'm impressing you anymore now. I'm not sure if I'm busting any myths, but you know, I think it's interesting that the, the secret self and the role of the unconscious and how that informed adulthood. All of this was quite new uh, and Freud was really on the scene and making uh, some important uh, publications at this period. So yeah, a bit more sexy, uh, the Edwardians than we might like to think, a bit more sort of spiritual than we might like to think and yeah, interested in secret selves too. That was John Wolfe. John is co-author of the Audible series Stephen Fry's Edwardian Secrets and Stephen Fry's Victorian Secrets. He's also the author of The Wonders, Lifting the Curtain on the Freak Show, Circus and Victorian Age, which is published by Michael O'Mara. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.